The following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. In this week's show, we have a special guest, Jason Haxton, a friend of our show. Mr. Haxton is a resident of Kirksville, Missouri, and is here to share his experience with the Amish community. Uh, welcome back to the show. We discussed demons in our past conversation. Today, we are delving into the world of a 17th century Christian sect. Like the Hasidim of Eastern Europe, they have chosen to stay separated from the modern world and to dress and live like their ancestors to honor their teachings. Uh, Mr. Haxton, can you tell us about how did you come across the Amish people in your area, and what have been your experiences like with them? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, it's great to be back with you guys. And uh, living in uh, rural Missouri, we're about three hours from every major city, so it makes it a very peaceful uh, farming culture um, in the heart of the United States. And uh, I chose to live here. Because uniquely, we have some universities here, uh, Truman State University of Liberal Arts uh, University, and then also uh, A.T. Steele University, which is a medical college for both uh, physicians and dentists and all forms of health care. So we're kind of unique in this area, and that's where I found my job and raised my family. And in our little community of Greentop, which is north of here, about eight miles, uh, I became mayor. And got grants for roads. Our roads were all dirt and clay and nasty. Our sewage would go out front of our house and the piss and the poop would go when the rain came. And as mayor, I helped us get millions of dollars uh, in grants for a lagoon. We paved the road. We got rid of the wild dogs. And it's a pretty nice little community. So I retired from my mayorship. And um, a few years later, uh, lo and behold, the Amish show up overnight and I can explain how that happens, but when they do come to an, a new area, they need help. They're a very close society. They don't want to mix with what they call the English because we speak the English language. Uh, they speak their uh, dialect, which is, I think, a little bit Swiss, a little bit German, a little bit Belgium, and a lot of Latin accent. Um, that's what the Amish basically language is like based on all my international friends that have listened to them. And so they don't want to be involved with we uh, that are of the English and modern world, but they need to for certain things, uh, legal issues and medicine and understanding laws. And so being the former mayor, uh, when this group arrived, I was the first to greet them. I was kind of brought into their community and have pretty much been active with them since about 2004. So that'll be 12 years. As recently as last night, I was out at the Amish community. A couple of the girls helped clean our house, and we were just kind of making a date for them to come out and um, and, and work. And so, um, uh, if you'd like, uh, David, I can explain now. How do you end up with no Amish, and then the next day you wake up, and there's like 150 families? Are you curious? <laughs> well, and I want to share... Yes, I am, but I want to share a little bit about um, my research on the history. Um, most people know the Amish from Pennsylvania. We live in Summertown, Tennessee, and there's a small Amish community here. 
um, and then there's the Mennonites and different uh, sects, but um, were they driven out from somewhere else or did they just grow in, in great numbers? Um, tell us how they ended up in your community. True. Um, if we go way back a couple hundred years, we'd find that um, the Amish, uh, which is named after uh, a person by, uh, uh, I think the guy was uh, Amon or something like that, and that's where we get the Amish and Mennonite, which comes from the Mennon. So there are two different kind of family groups, and certainly the Mennonites um, use electricity. They they're more modernized. They'll use cell phones, but they don't do the they don't have television just to have television or, you know, the internet, though they can use those things, they're very sparingly with technology, but they actually actually have those. So what we find is this group of Amish and Mennonites had been recruiting um, in Germany and in, in the area, you know, that borders Switzerland. And the people didn't like it and they started killing them. <laughs> so basically for religious freedom they left uh the german area and it was initially about 200 families that came probably uh to the united states in you know the late 1600 early 1700s they kind of mass kind of arrived um, and kind of try to keep their culture. Uh, and this is why they don't evangelize, because of their persecution. They're not out looking for recruits. So the Amish grow by their own marriage and population. But it's, it seems that if you're not born into the uh, Amish community, it's very difficult to really absorb and become part of that. People try, but invariably they seem to leave or things go very wrong and I, I'm talking from all my experiences and stories of uh, those that tried to adapt and it's just even the Amish say if you're not born into it it's very very difficult to really make it work and so this is why they're not out looking for people they want to come and have their little community and uh, and grow in that manner does that help Yes, uh, we'll touch on, on some of those things uh, in the rest of the show, but tell us, how did they end up in Kirksville? Well, and that's the thing, as, as you mentioned, uh, uh, in, in Lancaster, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, and in, then into Indiana, and, uh, well, I should say Ohio, and then Indiana, and now Missouri, when when the community gets so large that you really can't get from one end to the other in a buggy, you know, in a reasonable amount of time. I mean, the community grows to maybe, you know, um, 20 miles or so. Then a piece of them will break off uh, and, and you know, kind of, kind of like almost like a honeybee hive. They basically break off and start a new cluster. Well, uh, they realize when farm prices get too high, when uh, land gets to be ten, twelve thousand dollars an acre, because there just isn't any land left, uh, they may sell their ten acres, uh, make a hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and reinvest that in good farmland without an Amish community for maybe a couple thousand dollars an acre. So your 10 acres now suddenly become 60 acres, something that you can literally farm and do something with. So we see this this breaking off and growing and kind of moving west. So what an Amish community will do is they'll pull all their money together um, and then they'll start looking for where do they want to go. And they want to go to a rural, quiet, 
area with the best farmland at the cheapest prices. So they'll be looking at maybe three, four places, and they don't show their hand as to where they're going until they make this. So they're talking to the realtors, and nobody knows really which of the four places they may go to because as soon as they make the deal and buy their tracts of land, the prices will double, triple, because they know that the Amish will pay that land. So they actually will buy up to 4,000 acres in one fell swoop and with all their money. So again, it's, that's how you can one day not have Amish, and the next day they're everywhere you look. And this is how the realtors explained it. This is how they explained it. When they came overnight, so right away, uh, yeah, because we know a lot of the doctors that have graduated, one of the first things they needed, and so they reach out to a few what they call the English to help them with issues. And being a former mayor, they thought, well, you know, I'm probably as good as anybody to connect them because uh, they literally come in with no knowledge of anybody or anything. To show you how little knowledge they have, um, right away they need water because they use water from the earth. So, uh, you know, I go out there, and they're drilling a well. And, uh, you know, not a big deal. I go out there the next day, they're still drilling. It's like, my gosh, you know. And I go out there a third day, and they're still drilling. And it's like, how far down are you guys drilling? It's like, well, we're at 400 feet, and we still haven't hit the river. I said, you're not going to hit a river. It's like, what? Well, in Indiana, we drill down and we hit the river and then we've got all our water. I said, no, no, no. In Missouri, there's seep wells. You drill 30, 40 feet, the water fills up, you pump it out, and overnight it refills. That's how you get water in Missouri. So they don't know these things. So they need people to guide them through how things work. And so, um, you know, hopefully being uh, a good neighbor, they learned a lot really quick. But they're also very independent, you know. Um, so does, does that help you understand why they might need two or three people uh, just to connect them? Well, definitely. It's, it's interesting. Um, the Hasidic communities in New York, they have non-ultra-Orthodox doctors and lawyers because they're not concerned about their health. They're not concerned about their legal matters. They're concerned on, on these heavenly things. And then when they get sick, they end up at the ER and it has to be a non-ultra-Orthodox person that helps them through the process. Is that how it is for the Amish? Um, they certainly um, have, um, within their own group, people that can do, like, uh, chiropractic bone setting. They have their herbal medicine, you know, that they'll do. But they recognize when it's beyond their capabilities. You know, if a baby's being born breech, they get to the hospital immediately or, uh, you know, uh, if a person's been run over by a buggy, they get them, you know, they'll, they'll fly them by helicopter out. So we certainly, um, you know, they, they do what they can, but they're not afraid to use modern medicine. And they've got an insurance policy. Have you ever heard of the Amish insurance? Well, every family puts in $1,000. Now, if you've got 200 families, you got $200,000. So if there is any brain surgery, heart surgery, uh, if a house burns down, you've got the means to take care of it among that community. If they don't use all that money, they're willing to share it to another Amish community that might have a tornado go through or something. Just as if they use up all their money, they could reach out to the other Amish communities and get help. But one thing I do want to make clear, there is no... 
light chain of command through the Amish community, even though there are the people, there are the elders, the next level are the bishops. It's not like the Pope, <laughs> the Catholic Church, and, and, and where everything trickles down. Each unit is uniquely responsible, and they pick their own elders from that thing, and they make up their rules. So kids in one community that have cousins in another, maybe this community, they can ride bikes, but in this other community, and their cousins, they cannot ride bikes based on the rules. But in that other community, they can play harmonicas. But in this community, they cannot play harmonicas. So it is really interesting that when they're with their cousins, they can do what they can't do in their own community uh, because those rules are set by that unique little group. And when there's too many people, they start another church. So within our community, there could be actually two different church groups, two different schools as they keep expanding. Um, and then they'll make up their rules. It's interesting you mentioned the Amish insurance because there was a report on NPR where they were talking about how the Amish that they were discussing didn't have insurance, did not want to participate in any type of American system, and that they were willing to travel long distances to Mexico or Europe to go get um, major surgery done. And I'm wondering, like, are they traveling on boat? Are they traveling on a buggy all the way to Mexico? Uh, have you heard of, of them seeking outside help because they don't like the system in the U.S.? Well, again, um, what people misunderstand is they're not against cars. They're not against electricity uh, and modernization. Um, when the Amish girls come to clean my house, they have no trouble using the Dyson uh, vacuum. And as a matter of fact, they'll complain if it's not working com correctly. They're not afraid to use the microwave to make a snack, turn on the lights. Um, what the issue is that I understand is that if they as individuals use electricity and have cars, they become independent. And the whole issue about Amish is it's all about the community. So it's not so much, though it's a religious community, it really is what they're doing is to keep the community together. So if you can buy your own tractor, you don't need the whole community to come and help you basically harvest your corn with horses and stuff. Or when it's time to get ice, because you can make it by plugging in your refrigerator, you don't have to cut it on your pond and all the men come and get the ice off your pond and then you go to your neighbor's pond and then their neighbor's pond. So you see the whole issue of these tough ways of doing things, it keeps them unified. So it's all about the community. It's not really so much about the religious. As a matter of fact, they laugh, the young people, when we say, but you guys are so religious. And they laugh. It's like, what do you mean? We go to church every other week at someone's home. You go to church at least every week and sometimes two or three times a week, like on Wednesday nights, and you'll go maybe on a Saturday evening and a Sunday, and you call us religious, but you're going to church three times as much or you know, than we are. Did you ever, I mean, they think it's funny, the young people, I should say, that we call them religious. And they're saying, well, we go to church less than you do. 
But what is the role of religion? Uh, you, when you go to an Amish store, they have a little area where they have pamphlets and they have, there's one that even had audio CDs and, um, and, you know, they're not evangelizing per se, but they are making their, their faith uh, available for people. So is there daily, um, devotionals that they do as a family? Is there prayer before meals? What is the day in the life of a religious Amish family? Right, and they they do. I mean, I mean, I've been to Amish weddings and I've stayed in their homes. But you know, the funny thing is, it's it's amazingly like my own house growing up. Uh, I remember getting up on Sunday morning and everybody's running around to get ready for church, and there's mom with her you know half button dress, hair hanging down, running with the kids, going this way. It was. I grew up in a family of five children, and I just had to stop for a second and laugh because it looked just like my house on Sunday morning, that there was no calm anywhere. It was a mad rush. But what I'm saying is, if you don't live with them, you'd never see this. As a matter of fact, they're not really, a, I don't consider them modest people. You know, uh, when you're there and you're going to town, you'll never see the Amish typically out in the public not in their best, but when they, if you go out to their farm, they're in ragged, sewed up, ripped up, dirty clothes because they're working. But if you say, hey, let's go to town, well, they'll go in and take a quick little sponge bath and put on their nice clothes. They're not going to go into town dirty. Um, you know, it's just the way it is. Um, so in some ways, you don't really get to see how they are when they're comfortable. And they tease and they joke. The young men are just like any young man, teasing about girls and this and that and sexuality and all those jokes. They're, they're just like everyone else. And that's what the Amish will tell you. We're just like everyone else. We don't have any big secrets. We struggle every day, you know, to be better. We don't like everybody in the community, but we're all stuck together. You know, they always enjoyed us as an outlet because sometimes they could vent because we weren't going to go tell everybody because we're not part of the community. You know, I'm just saying um, the Amish aren't not, you know, I'm going to write a book, I think, because the Amish aren't what we think they are. They've got a great sense of humor. They love play on words. You know, you drive by a cemetery and they'll say something like, well, look, there's an English berry patch. <laughs> <laughs> where we bury things, but they're thinking of blackberries or something like that. Or um, uh, one of their favorite jokes was uh, one of the young men when I was driving him. Because again, they don't mind using cars. If you'll drive them, that's great. But they will not own a car because it will remove them from their society. But I remember driving a young man uh, somewhere, and uh, he very seriously said, "You know, um, my grandmother used to beat me up." It's like, I mean, I'm thinking, gosh, I don't remember them being that violent. I mean, you know, they're not what we think they are. He goes, oh, yeah, uh, you know, she she beat me up, gosh, almost every day, you know. She she beat me up in the morning. And, uh, you know, because she'd always be up at four and I'd always be up at five. They, they'd clue you into the joke. But they thought it was funny that you would think that they would be violent, you know. So in beating you up, they're talking about getting up in the morning. And they know perfectly well that you're thinking of it in a different way. And they love to play on words. I mean, that's one of their favorite pastimes is to use double entendre of words, you know, words with multiple meanings. Um, they think it's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, living in rural Tennessee, there's a lot of traditionalism. And I've talked 
to people from from small Christian groups and you'll be talking to the wife and you say, hey, um, you guys are invited to something and they'll say, well, let me talk to my husband. And it's not like, let me talk to my husband so we can all go. It's let me talk to my husband so I get permission to go. Is it the same way for the Amish? What is the role of women and are they subservient to the men? Well, certainly on the outset, the men make supposedly the decisions and the men are all the bishops and, you know, all that aspect. However, trust me, those men consult and, 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 and visit with their wives because they've got to live with them. <laughs> so, you know, say what you want, but the wives do have some control to make life miserable. If they're not happy, then nobody's happy. Kind of, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. So part of it is, even though the men might make the decision, in the back of their mind, they're also wanting to make sure mom is happy too. Uh, so, you know, uh, but certainly the men have the advantage in the working and the rules and, you know, uh, in many aspects. Uh, if a guy doesn't get married, it's not a big deal. If a girl doesn't get married, it's the end of the world because her role is to have kids and provide and, you know... Um, it, you know, that's the funny thing is I look at a family where um, two kids aren't married and they're both about the same age, but it's a it's a, a sadness for the woman, for the guy, oh, he just hasn't settled down yet. <laughs> and then uh, I know the education is important and they do most of their education out in the fields, but uh, there was an interesting thing that we saw here with the Amish community. Um, somebody was driving by and they saw two African-American women dressed up like the Amish teaching the children do they hire people from the outside to teach the kids every once in a while or is there such a thing as people who are not from the german or swedish background who have been integrated into their communities in relation to the teaching well i i don't think it'd be very common but something might have happened that they ended up with babies and raised them uh but here's the thing they do provide their own education and typically when a woman and it's but I've seen male teachers. That's an interesting thing, too. There was a, uh, one of the men um, had a disease. It's called limb girder. And basically, you slowly lose the ability to walk and use your arms. And pretty soon, you can just sit and have to be fed. But what's unique about the Amish is we're in um, the English population. They die by the time they're 30. In the Amish population, they can live up to 60 and older. Uh it's a unique thing, but it, it's basically a form of muscular dystrophy. But the thing about it is, is you don't know you have it, and because of their genetics, until they're 13, when you start having trouble walking, and by the time you're 18, you can't walk at all. So there was a young man who had that disease who was a teacher, uh, and of course the kids would push him around the wheelchair and stuff like that, and he'd teach. But usually it's a woman, and it's an unmarried woman, and she was probably a brighter student. And so you only know what she learned. And education is only up to uh, the age of 13, which would be about eighth grade. Um, and that's because the Amish feel that at that age, you start to become independent. So if you further your education, you will start to, again, it goes back to becoming an individual, and that's not what it's about. And so... Uh, in Wisconsin in the 1960s, 67 or so, they went before the court and said, look, we want to provide our own education. We want to stop it at eighth grade. We're not a burden on society. We're not on welfare. We're not uh, in prisons. And so um, 
they looked at this and gave them permission to stop the education at eighth grade. I feel this is where the travesty is in the Amish community. I don't mind people being Amish, and I don't mind them having that choice. But if you have no education, you really have no choice. Because if they stop their education at the age of 13, and in their community, they're not an adult till they're 21. So that's eight more years they get no education. Now they're 21, and they're off on their own, and they decide they don't want to be Amish, and they want to do whatever. They're eight years behind everybody else in education. Um, and that eighth-grade education, in today's terms, is probably about a third-grade education because kids now are doing algebra and all kinds of calculus and things that we never did at that age. And the Amish are literally getting a basic reading, writing, and math. I mean, you know, just the simplest. So they are so far in education that if they try to leave, they can't stay away because they they can't compete. And then they're alone because their family will have nothing to do with them. So you can't get good work and you're alone. Is it any wonder that a lot of them ended up coming back? They've got trades like construction, but that basically means is you'll do construction the rest of your life. They don't have the choice to become a veterinarian or a teacher or whatever, a cook. They don't have those options because they don't have the education. And that's the thing I have the most issue with is we permit in the United States for these kids to have a third grade education and they'll say it's eighth grade but if they were to take a standardized test they'd be testing at third grade and we permit this in america and so i i because we think it's unique to see these little you know pilgrims uh these little colony looking people and we love to remember the pioneer frontier of america but the sad thing about it is if those one if they want to do it great but we should provide everyone in education I couldn't do that to my kids. I couldn't give them a third grade education and not get in trouble with the law. Um, and so that is my biggest gripe about the Amish is the kids get no education, so of course they have to stay. And those that break out have a horrible time trying to make it. And that's why a lot of them won't do it. And 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 we look in the Middle East and say, look at the burkas. Look how these people are uneducated. Look what they do. We have done the same thing, in my opinion, with the Amish in the United States. We have permitted a lack of education, and, and, and we blessed it. It needs to go back to court and relook at it and say, you get a full education like any American, and then if you choose to be Amish, good for you. Yeah, because that, that's the, the challenge of multiculturalism. Are we being too sensitive to their cultural um, needs and their cultural customs and then uh, allowing for for some type of um for them to be held back i know in in some groups they discourage going to college because they think that when you go to college you become more liberal and you start uh, being more open-minded about things so some religious groups they don't want their kids to go to college but like you said uh having that little of education does hold people back and that's the idea you know again just because if you have a 12th grade education, you can go to college. You can get a loan. You can make that decision. An Amish can't. They would never get accepted. <laughs> so we have already said you're, you, you, you're eliminated from any higher learning because we have sanctioned that you'll be brought up that way. And I, I just, 
I, I really have a hard time with that. I love the Amish, but I also would say, here's the thing is, people say, well, then, you know, you're pro-English. You know what? We got plenty of problems in our English world, and the Amish have plenty of problems. And I often tell the Amish, I say, you know what? I think no matter what you are, if you're Amish, it's going to be hard, and if you're English, it's going to be hard. But I believe you should have the choice. You know, you get to choose your poison, um, and they don't. They don't have a choice. You know, I can live a simple life. I can, I can go off the grid you know, and live like them. They can't really leave theirs and live like me. Tell me about the, you know, in that show, Amish in the City, they give the impression that the Amish have a year to go wild and, and try the real world. And my experience working in hospitals is that they have a year to volunteer at something like a hospital and help out in the greater world And then they go back, and during that year, they were living among Amish. They were being um, supported by an older family who was making sure that they weren't getting into trouble. And they're providing uh, volunteer or charitable work. So it's not like it's just a free-for-all for that one year, and then they get to choose to go back. It's more like a missionary work they do for a year, and then they, they go back. Is that what has been your experience? Well, the term is called rumspringer, which is kind of like running wild, <laughs> I guess, you know, kind of like, uh, but the bottom line is, as I said, each group gets to dictate how that's going to be. There's a place called Jamesport, Missouri, where literally the kids cut off their hair, buy trucks, wear leather jackets, and self, and they literally live just like every teenage kid. Uh, and maybe better than every teenage kid, and they get to truly choose. But that's a more liberal Amish community because they enter, they make their living off tourism. So they see this stuff and they interact a lot more. My group in um, the Schuyler County area, they will try to get them to commit to the church at the age of 16, 15 or 16, which basically means once they commit to the church, they could never do that. So they almost eliminate the Rungspringer. Our, our group, they don't get to do that. I mean, they don't even get to volunteer and work at a hospital or anything like that. Though during the Vietnam War, one of the elders actually, because he was a conscientious objector, he still had to go and serve, only he served in the kitchen cutting potatoes. He said, I'm so sick of cutting potatoes. But he is actually one of the bishops today. So, But neither here nor there. Every group decides how liberal they're going to let them go out and be wild. And some do it very fairly and say, go out and taste the world. And if that's what you want, great. And some don't even let them really do it. In the world of intentional communities, we live in an intentional community, one of the ones that has lived the longest and in the U.S. And they were considered the technicolor Am Amish for a while because they were self-sufficient. They had farming and health care and other uh, programs available for the people that were living here and everybody was sharing their income. Do you see the Amish as the true self-sufficient off-grid people or do they have like sanitary problems because of being so rural and, and kind of old fashioned about their um, sewage and things like that? Do they have issues with, um, you know, vaccines or, or other type of They're pretty tough because they're used to, you know, drinking water right out of the ground and stuff like that. They certainly have more dental issues because they don't have the fluoride 
that is naturally in our water. So uh, they certainly, and they don't, weirdly enough, they don't take good care of their teeth. They just assume to have them all pulled and have false teeth. So uh, there's only one family I know of that actually brushes and they have the most beautiful teeth. So the bottom line is dental uh, issues are really uh, major for most of the Amish. But the thing about it is, is, as you mentioned, I think they truly are off the grid and self-sustaining. I mean, they can raise their own food, butcher their own food, build anything. And so uh, they, they really do um, survive, uh, sustenance surviving on their own. And then they go out and do extra stuff to have money for medicine or whatever else they want to do that's extra. But they can live on their own just dandy. <laughs> You, you talked about some of the issues with the education, but um, you know, a lot a lot of people have gone the um, the self sustaining route, and uh, one of the issues is is running water, or uh, you have solar panels and there's too many trees, or it's cloudy. Uh, how do they survive out in the wilderness? That they do um, so no electricity. They cook on on fire, so it's just all like like you were living in a log cabin or like Tarzan in the woods? Like. Oh, no. I mean, as they'll tell you, um, we live a simple life, but we're not simple people. I mean, they're very aware of what's going on in technology, and they, they, and they do adapt technology. They just very slowly adapt technology. But I've seen them with solar panel um, electric wire fences. <laughs> they have no issue with that using the sunlight to power the electricity. And, and they'll, you know, obviously, if they're riding their budgies, they need lights on the highway, so they'll use a lawnmower to charge, um, you know, a battery so if they have lights at night, uh, you know, on the buggy. Otherwise, they use Coleman lanterns, you know, in their homes, which are about blinding. Um, so, so, again, they will incorporate things kind of, but they, they, they try to stay pure as possible in, in, in the process. So... Um, you know, but they, they'll spend hours trying to figure out how to rig a hot shower using, you know, tubs and gravity and this and that and pressurized this. I mean, it's funny the lengths they'll go to, to mimic what we do when we just turn on a, a faucet. <laughs> you hinted at their pacifism, like that one elder that, that he peeled potatoes at, in the military. Um, is that one of their major, um, tenants to be uh, objectors during um, military endeavors? and They're required to sign up for the draft, and they do, because I've taken some of the young people on their 18th birthday to sign up. You know, um, if they don't want to be found, you're not going to find them, because everybody has the same name. I mean, if it's like you say you're looking for Daniel Miller, well, which Daniel Miller? There could be eight in any community. You know, so the reality of it is, is they pretty much serve out their own justice. Um, if something's going wrong, they typically will handle it internally. Um, and the reality of it is, is they go out hunting and someone has an accident and is killed. It's pretty much just handled in the community. I mean, they're not going to go to the sheriff's or this or that, It, you know. They'll take the person and bury them, and it was a hunting accident. Um, most recently, uh, there was a major case, I think down in Tennessee, it was actually um, from our area, the barn triggers. This guy was basically feeding his wife battery acid and I think antifreeze, 
and killed his wife. But for the most part, he got away with it. I mean, the funny thing is, is the community knew something was wrong because all of a sudden they all split and half of them leave. So what I'm saying is they knew what happened. And all of a sudden this guy after, I don't know, seven, eight years, he just can't deal with it all and he confesses. He, in theory, got away with it, but he confessed that he killed his wife. Um, that's what I'm showing you, that if my wife died, you could bet the community would be in there. There'd be an inquiry. They'd try to figure out what happened. That's why in their community, they're completely responsible. They really are off the grid when it comes to everything, <laughs> you know. If you come on to their community and say, as a policeman, I need to find so-and-so, they're just going to look at you like they don't speak English. How are you going to find anybody in that community? And then they can go to another community and another community. I mean, literally, they can vanish. Um, you'll never find them. If they don't want to be found, you won't find them. They don't exist. Well, we're talking in that. I know in the past you mentioned that uh, the Amish Mafia show is just ridiculous, and a lot of scholars say that it's fake and, and obnoxious, but um, they would never allow anybody to video record them or photograph them or follow them around. I know we're, we're making broad generalizations, but um, they are, is there such a thing as light um, Amish, like you're saying, or, or the Mennonites who are more liberal? Well, that's the thing is, um, certainly Mennonites are not liberal, but they don't want to be on film either or do any of those things. The Amish you see on TV might be one generation removed or one of those groups that left or, you know, whatever. And, but again, what they do, again, most of the Amish don't know. They hear about it, but again, they're never going to know about it because they're not going to watch that stuff. Uh, and they'd laugh about it. It just wouldn't happen, you know. Uh, running back and forth between the English world and the Amish world. It, it just isn't that way. Um, Amish are Amish, and it's closed, and it's none of that stuff that you see on TV. They do some, what I'm saying, it's not that there isn't some things you'd find out, but you'd really have to be completely enmeshed, and you still couldn't film it unless you did it without their knowledge. Um, you know... And again, it's it's just the graven image. It goes back to you don't worship graven image, and a graven image is a photograph. It means that you don't worship yourself in your youth. Now, that doesn't mean some of the young kids won't come over and say, hey, take my picture. I want to send it to a girl I know. And they do that. You know, They're not going to burn in hell because you took a picture of them in sunglasses. So what is the difference between the Amish and the Mennonites from what you know? The biggest part is, again, the Mennonites... Um, Certainly are more with the times and using cars and electricity and, you know, they don't think they have to literally live like farmers. Um, they're more likely to do construction and, and businesses like concrete and um, tree trimming and stuff, you know. Um, they're more, they're less likely to farm as much. They might have a nice little garden, but where the Amish literally are butchering animals and farming, the Mennonites, you know, they make enough money in the English world that they don't have to do those things. You know, and here's the weird thing. The Mennonites, typically, because they speak the Amish dialect, will hire the Amish to do the work. And the Amish are quite happy with that. I mean, what they're saying is, well, we don't want to have to 
you know, use cars or use phones or figure out where we're going to work next. So what ends up happening is the Mennonites will go, they'll live near the Amish communities. They have their own separate churches, but they'll go in and they'll basically pick up a team and that will be their work team and they'll get jobs. And all the Amish want is my pay at the end of the week. I don't, you just tell me, you just take me where we're going, tell me what to do and pay me. They don't want to get into anything. You ask an Amish, you know, what? going to happen next Friday, for the most part, they don't plan more than a day in advance. I mean, it really takes something to get them to commit five days out. <laughs> They're like, well, I don't know. They, they don't make a lot of decisions, um, you know, like that. They're not supposed to think of themselves. So if you bring them over and you ask the kids, do you want chocolate? Do you want vanilla ice cream? Do you want a little chocolate and a little vanilla ice cream? The kid looks at you like, I don't know. And the parent will tell you what to give them. <laughs> so are they considered part of the overall Christian church, or are they a separate sect? Oh, they consider. I mean, they read the, 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 the Christian Bible, and it's all in German. But, I mean, that's what they, they use is, is, you know, the German Bible. So you never heard from other denominations um, kind of shunning them as like, oh, those people are backwards or they're, a little cult unto themselves, like it's pretty much they're accepted by the greater Christian world from what you've seen? Oh, yes. If anything, they're a little bit envious because they've given up so much and they work so hard. We think of them as being more pious. However, I will also tell you the local farmers, many of them don't like the Amish. They think that they use their community, you know, to get away with stuff, you know. And so in many ways, more local farmers around the Amish will dislike them than like them. There are some that like them. Have you um, talked to them or, or done some research on their use of pesticides in their food? And it took us forever to find an organic Amish farm, and, and they feel the same way that we do about chemicals. Uh, have you heard of some of them getting sick from the use of pesticides and, and using pretty much the same methods of farming? The funny thing about the Amish, is, I, I do, I'm aware of this, is, you know, some of the medicines that they use from the vets for their cows and animals and livestock, they're not opposed to using it on their own kids. But, um, you know, rather than pay for um, a surgery in the United States, they'll go to Mexico because it's a third. Now, I have to say, part of it is the bishops will make the decision saying, okay, you have the surgery here in the United States, say the kid has a brain tumor, $80,000 and follow up more money. We can take you to Tijuana and have the same surgery for $20,000. we are going to get on a van and go to Tijuana. <laughs> I've seen that. I mean, we can tell them, hey, but if you go to Barnes Jewish, it's free. Nope, we're not going to take charity. But then when the bill comes, they will negotiate, if we give you cash, what, what will you take? <laughs> They're not going to say that when you say, well, here's your bill, that, that that's fine and dandy, they'll negotiate the bill. And they will go to the hospital. If they're sick or hurt or whatever, they will go to the hospital. They'll worry about the bill later. <laughs> it's like, what? What I've seen of it is, I mean, they use horse and plow. I mean, they're not out there with pesticide sprayers and all this. You know, they, they do it very natural. Just like they go out on their pond and they cut the ice. I mean, can you imagine using pond ice, I mean, but, you know, it keeps things cool. But, I mean, I've gone with my kids over for a dinner, 
and they've set down a pitcher of water and given everybody a glass and crap is floating in the water. And my kids are like, do we have to drink that? Because, you know, we're not used to drinking it. We're going to get amoebas. We're going to get sick. We're going to have diarrhea. So I always bring soda and say, well, it's a special treat. We've brought soda. Oh, everybody wants soda. So I tell my kids, just drink the soda. Don't drink the water. Uh, how is it for their relationships? Um, they can only marry within that community, or if there's not enough men or women, are they allowed to uh, travel to another group to join them? Oh, no, they're allowed to travel. Here's the weird thing. Our community, actually, the brothers of one family, say the Schwartzes, married the women of the Millers, and the Miller men married the Schwartz women. So what you literally have is these brothers and sisters that are all married across in one giant community. Now, when they have kids, who can they marry? Nobody, because the entire community is all brothers and sisters from two families. <laughs> you know, they got 10 kids each. So, <laughs> so these 10 marry those 10 and now create a family, you know, of 10 more kids in each of the 10 families. So now you got like 100 kids and none of them can marry. So, so do they worry about um, inbreeding and genetic defects or? They're aware of it. I mean, you know, so for the most part, they do get that. They're not going to marry their cousins. Um, but they'll go back to the community and not be too far removed. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's turn to the positive side. What have you learned from the Amish by befriending them? And what are the things that we can take away from their experience in a small community, self-sufficient, um, you know, strongly held together? What are the things that, that they can pass on to us modern people? Well, and that's the thing is, they, they do, the funny thing is, they never stop working, but it's at a reasonable pace. So it's kind of like a step, you know, leads to the journey, a stitch in time. You just begin. But what you also will find is they're not running crazy in circles. They just start the job, they have time to sing, they have time to chat, they have time to kind of, you know, work at a pace that's not like, i got to get this done in five minutes. So it gets done, and they're always working, but I think realistically they work at a little bit slower pace, but it's a very steady pace. And I think in that way they get just as much done, and it's enjoyable. Um, there is a, an innocence in they will tell you everything. They are brutally honest, which they often will say things that would you realize that somebody might use that against you. You know, you're so honest about things that do you realize that a more evil person could take what you just told them and knowing what they know now about you now can manipulate you? They don't even think about that. They're just, well, it's just the way it is. So I guess there is kind of a childlike, honesty that you have and I find that very refreshing because when you're talking to an honest person they're with you soul to soul I mean they're completely absorbed in you and what's going on at that moment and I guess that's you know something I I do enjoy about our interactions oh they love to be teased and fun with but what I'm saying is they're going to be absolutely honest with you and that's refreshing they have nothing to hide 
you ask, and they and they'll ask you questions that would be like, uh, that's a little personal. Uh, they don't understand personal space. <laughs> it's like, well, just want to know. <laughs> so in that sense, I guess I should say that the family is a tight unit, and the family. I mean, there is a purity of, of, of conversation, and there is a work ethic, but it's a reasonable work ethic. And they take care of their sick and their elderly, um, you know. Um, so in, in many ways, I guess that's what I'm saying is there's good things about the Amish. It's not all horrible, and that's why I'm saying, well, it's, you know, you don't lose because you're an Amish and win because you're English. There's things we do that are no good, but there are also good things, too. So um, it's it's just different, and that's what I always tell them. It's like I don't care if you're English or Amish; it's it's just different. You've got to decide which, but one is not better than the other. It's just different, and they get that. Uh, they know that I don't, you know, go out there to recruit them to become, you know, uh, English. They they certainly I think respect that. Is um, I I they know if they wanted to be, I would support them, but I wouldn't ever try to push them that way it just it just doesn't make sense but i am frustrated with the education system because i do think that in that sense it's not a choice and i remember one of the english kids that ran away and then came back um he was 16 at the time he left for about mm, five months went to live with another amish who had left doing construction many many states away and he did everything race cars watch tv Red Playboy magazine, you know, all that, because I saw pictures of it, drank beer, uh, wore shorts, cut his hair off, um, and then he came back. And I remember picking him up at the bus station, and I was, you know, taking him back home, and he said he was sorry for me. I said, well, why are you sorry? He said, because, um, you know, you're going to, the community is going to see you as a bad influence. I said, well, I said, I'm, you know, and I said, don't be sorry, because I, I, you wanted to go, and I just didn't want you to be hurt. So I took him to the bus station. I didn't make the arrangements. He made the arrangements. But I did drive him to the bus, because I didn't want him to try to do it on his own and get hurt. But I said, but, I, but even at the bus station, I said, if you want to go home right now, we can just turn around and go back home. You know, I said, it really, I don't care that you go or not go. It means nothing to me. And... So he said that he said now that he was back, he said the difference now is I'll make a choice. I, I, I know enough, I get to make a choice. And he realized that's not true of the rest of his community. And uh weird thing is though, um two, three years later, everything's fine. I still hang out with him. As a matter of fact, I think they respect me because he went back and told them he did it, he was going to do it, and all I did was make sure he didn't get hurt. And I think in that sense, they realize I'm not an enemy of the Amish, um, but I don't want any young person to get hurt if they're experimenting, you know. So does that help, David? I'm... So from that experience, you saw the Amish as being a forgiving people that instead of shunning this young man, they accepted him back. And would it be the same if it was a girl doing that thing? It would be. What I'm saying is, and I've seen people leave and come back, and they're happy that they're back. And and they truly believe that now that they've gone out, they won't do it again, you know. And, and most don't. You know, this young man still hasn't 
I mean, he, he, he's lived that, that, gosh, he's now, that's 10 years ago. But here's the strange thing. He's never married. <laughs> he is probably the, about one of the oldest Amish men that's not married. Anyway, I just think, you know, I wonder what's going on in his mind sometimes. We're friendly to each other and we laugh, but, uh, you know, inside we each know that he's seen both worlds. So, uh, have you attended any of the church services and do you know how the structure works here at the, the farm intentional community? They do meditation and they do a Quaker, um, talk afterward where you're led by the spirit and, and you speak whatever comes to mind and people take turns. I've heard that the Quakers do a thing like that where nobody's a pastor and everybody gets to share what they've learned from the Bible that, that weekend. Um, have have you had a chance to partake of their religious ceremonies? No, but I've heard, for instance, I mean, they do, you know, the church is quite long, and then, of course, afterwards there's a meal, and it is held in a home. So every, every other week, somebody in the community will sponsor the whole community in their home, which is why most of them will empty out. A little wagon shows up with benches, and the benches all go into the house, and so you know he's having church because you'll see the bench wagon sitting in their yard, you know, the week before. And um, everybody helps with the food and all, but you're supposed to once or twice a year hold church. And um, afterwards they have what they call singing, and that's when young people get to meet other young people from other communities. They don't really sing. I mean, they sing some, but mostly they run around and get to know each other like young kids do. Um, so there is always the after-church such and the church itself they will call people out who um um who have done wrong and uh you know are shunned i mean people are shunned and 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 the elders there's three and they'll decide when you're no longer shunned and because you're shunned they will directly talk about you in front of everybody they're in the church as, as, as a lesson to everyone um but mostly then they'll read biblical things and sing. Their singing is interesting because it's kind of like Gregorian chant. They hold the notes really, really, really long so that the words almost don't even sound like words anymore. And um, some of the young men sang for me once, and after they did, it was like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> and then I was outside of a building where the men were practicing singing, and it was that strange, eerie, it's strange. It's a strange sound. <laughs> are, are the Mennonites' uh, church uh, services different? And Yeah, because the, the Mennonites actually invite the locals to come to their church. So I get it. I mean, that would be one of the differences. They, they have a more regular-looking church, and it is a church building. Uh, with pews, and it's usually near the school, and they can use it for teaching as well as for the Sunday church. They probably have church every Sunday, um, and it would be more traditional. And they don't mind if I were to show up at the Mennonite church, provided I was trying to live a good moral life, they'd be happy to have me. Where the Amish, if I showed up at church, it would be like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Uh, you know, you're not going to understand the language. You're not really part of our religious community. This is going to be awkward. Do you know if there's been any sociologists who've tried to uh, in incorporate themselves to the Amish community for a couple of years and try to 
learn about their customs or they they wouldn't be open to any scientific research on them? They wouldn't be open to being looked at like that way. The only true good Amish sociologists, their family were Amish and left. <clears throat> Therefore, they have an avenue through their relations. And I know of a few, but those are the only ones that really can, I think, talk about the Amish. And, and I'm, I'm saying, you know, again, I've, I've only told you what I know from my one community. I've just told you every community is different. Uh, but the community I know, I've just described to you, and I've known them now since 2004, so 12 years. Um, and I think, again, uh, it, they, they, you know, they don't hide anything from me. I mean, you know, if they're eating, they're eating. I mean, I take doctors out there and we work with them. So I guess I see them quite a bit. Um, if they need to go somewhere, I drive them sometimes, you know. Um, so, you know, we're very casual with each other. So I, I guess that's what I'm saying is if you were in a store and you saw an Amish and you walked up and said, hi, my name's, you know, David, and I'd like to, you know, know more about you. They would smile, and then they'd stare at you like they just didn't understand what you just said. Because, and it would become, after about five minutes, uncomfortable enough, you'd probably leave. But if I walked up to them and I said, hey, my name's Jason, um, where are you from? They might say La Plata. I said, oh, well, because my friends are all the Amish up in Greentop. Bishop, you know, Elmer Gaber and, and Bishop uh, uh, Schwartz. And, you know, I hang out with the, the Johnny Miller family. And, uh, and I'd start naming people. They would know very quickly that I'm one of those English people that know the Amish. And generally, they chit-chat with me because I'm not much different than they are because I'm accepted in that community. But if they pretended like they didn't understand me, it'd be like, oh, you're, you're playing that game you play with the people who don't understand you. You know, I think it's kind of cute, but the bottom line is I know you're not that way. <laughs> I know that you gossip. I know that you hang out. I know that you're just like us. And they'll say, so, you know, you, you can pretend to be like you don't understand me, but you and I know that that's all just a front. But that's what I'm saying. That's how they protect their isolationism and their, their you know, closed group. Um, again, I, they really will go out of their way to make a friend that's not in their community. Uh, last question. Have you had a chance to uh, work with midwives within the Amish community? Here we have one of the most um, successful midwife midwifery program in the world, and I've heard of our midwives delivering their babies and maybe um, a couple of Amish women training through our program. Um, what has, what have you heard in your community regarding that topic? Well, certainly they prefer to have their kids at their own home, but when things go wrong or if it's the first child, it's, it's not unusual for them to end up at the hospital, but they won't have prenatal. You know, they'll just show up, here comes the kid, and the doctor like, who are you? I have no idea what you've been doing for the last nine months. And it's usually an emergency situation. <laughs> so, again, but, you know, after their first kid, it's like, well, why can't, you know, you should be able to have your second kid at home. And they're all, very, as you say, they're various levels of training. 
and provided everything's normal, there's no big deal about it. So that's what I'm aware of. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic. We would like to thank the Independent Media Club at the farm for their continued support and Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance. The opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect those of anyone but the person speaking. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of What's Radio or the farm.